Our passage this morning is from the seventh chapter of Isaiah. It's a classic Christmas text, and it's rooted right in the politics of the eighth century B.C. Aram and the northern kingdom of Israel have set their armies against Judah. They hope to force Judah into their alliance to hold off this growing Assyrian superpower. Which nations will prevail? What will Judah do? Where is God in all of this? Please stand for a reading of God's word from Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Ephraim here is representative of all of the northern kingdom of Israel. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Verse 7, though there are two armies encamped against Jerusalem, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. This will not happen. Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether the deepest of depths or the highest of heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and reject the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, The land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He's going to bring the king of the Assyrians. In that day, the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta in Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the crevices, in the rocks, on all the thorn bushes and at all of the water holes. In that day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of the Assyrians, to shave your head and private parts and to cut off your beard also. In that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats. And because of the abundance of milk they give, there will be curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. The word of the Lord, which is living and active and lays open our thoughts and our intentions. Let's pray. Lord, you have not left us in the dark about who you are, but you have spoken. You have revealed yourself. You make yourself known in human terms that we might know you. You have come to dwell among us and you plan to live with us forevermore. Would you show us yourself in these words and equip us to walk with you until we no longer wait for your return? Because you have promised to return soon. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you ever fly into SVO, the biggest airport in Russia, you're going to be meted by three kinds of helpers. Uh, the first will be at card tables, and they will have little cardboard signs set up that say traveler information, and they're trying to sell you a few things. And then the Russian police will come up, and they'll offer to help. And Russian citizens haven't yet decided if they trust the help of the Russian police. And then taxi drivers will come up asking outrageous prices for relatively short drives across the city. 
whether you've initiated or not, the haggling will come right up to your nose until you're asking the question, who am I going to let drive me away from this airport? Questions begin to race through your head like, how much am I willing to pay? How badly would I like to be murdered today? Essentially, you're asking the question, who can I trust? You cannot navigate through life alone. At some point, you're going to be pushed to the place of trust. Will you trust the people around you to be helpful? Will you trust that things will work out for you? Or will you resolve that you have to tear yourself apart because the only person that you can trust is yourself? As one hardworking restaurant owner told me a few years ago, my hands are all that I believe in. Isaiah is sent by God in this passage with an answer to those questions. Who is it that we should trust when armies are against us on our worst days? Who do we trust? Trust in Emmanuel. Trust in the God who is with you. There's a thought about God that originated on college campuses in the 17th and 18th centuries, and it's called theism. And theism is the idea that a God has created the universe, wound it up like a clock, stepped back, and now he has better things to do. The universe is running on its own. God's not actively involved. But we Christians who celebrate break Christmas, we believe that God has come to dwell among us. If there is an Emmanuel, if there is a God who is with us, this obliterates the idea of theism. God is very much involved in this creation. Here's what's happening. In our passage, Aram, or your translation may say Syria, Aram and the northern kingdom of Israel have aligned their interests and they're pushing Judah to a decision. Will Judah trust this new alliance to hold off the superpower of the Assyrians? Or will paying tribute to the Assyrians win the favor of an emerging giant? In this passage, multiple governments are threatening the existence of Judah. It says in verse 2 that they're so scared, they're trembling like leaves shake in the wind. Now, doesn't that sound an awful lot like a 21st century American watching the 24-hour news cycle? Right? We know we're going to be destroyed. Multiple things threaten our existence. I don't know what's going to destroy us. It's probably some combination of Kim Jong-un, distracted driving, misapplication of childhood vaccinations. But it's going down. We shake with fear just like leaves shake in the wind. And Isaiah is telling you, you don't have to live that way. Not if there's an Emmanuel. Not if there's a God who's with you. Verse 4 He tells Ahaz, stay calm. These threats will not last forever. Isaiah calls them uh, burning fire stubs, like the dying fire stubs at the end of a fire. These things you're afraid of are not going to last as long as you think they will. And often that's the case. God even offers Ahaz a sign. He says, ask of me, Ahaz, anything as high as heaven or as low as hell, and it will be done for you so that you know it's the Lord who's behind this message. But Ahaz has already made up his mind. He already has decided who he's going to trust. Second Kings 16 tells us that Ahaz has already decided to pay tribute to Tiglath-Pelesar, the king of the Assyrians. He, he trusts the Assyrians to deliver him. He trusts them to be his protection. He trusts that when they gain sovereignty of all of the ancient Near East, they're going to remember Ahaz and they're going to treat him favorably. But God had been very clear to his people. They weren't to set their trust in foreign armies. God himself was to be their trust. 
And so with all the piety in y'all, when you recruit anybody to church or you ask somebody into your Bible study or you offer to read the Bible with someone, you're going to hear pious answers, pious excuses often. And Ahaz has a pretty good one. He says, oh, far be it from me that I should put the Lord my God to a test. And this has the appearance of godliness. As if Ahaz is saying, God doesn't need to do anything supernatural in order for me to believe in him. And yet, having uttered these pithy sounds of godliness, Ahaz continues on, not planning to trust the Lord, but planning to trust the deal that he's brokering with the Assyrians. Very well, then, replies the Lord. If you will not pick a sign, how about I pick one for you? Verse 14, a virgin will have a child. An interesting thing in Hebrew there, that word virgin. In Hebrew, it's virgin. A virgin will have a child. Something supernatural is about to go down. And if that's not odd enough, his name's going to be Emmanuel. It's literally going to be God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. And by the time that that boy is old enough to tell the difference between right and wrong, these two things that you are so afraid of, they're not even going to exist anymore. But when this sign comes to pass, Ahaz, there will be great judgment for you. You did not respond to the Lord's warnings. You will be judged. The one that you are putting your trust in, Assyria, ironically, it's going to be the king of the Syrians that's going to be your destruction. Now, there are two camps of thoughts on this this sign. That God has promised to send in Emmanuel. And by the time that boy is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, these two governments are going to cease to exist. The first camp believes that the only fulfillment of that prophecy is the man Jesus of Nazareth. 700 years after this is prophesied, Jesus comes being born of a virgin. But there's another group of people that believe there's also a short-term fulfillment of this promise. That in the relatively short period of time that it would take, For a virgin to conceive and bring a child to the age of discretion, the two governments that Judah is worried about will have already ceased to exist. And that's exactly what happens. Within three years, Aram would no longer be a kingdom. Within 13 years, the northern kingdom of Israel would be marched off into captivity. In either case, this is a sign of grace. God is telling Ahaz that he's telling the truth. And the child would be named Emmanuel, which means God with us, because only God could deliver Ahaz from the situation he found himself in. But since Ahaz rejected this kindness, it would come with judgment. Ahaz rejects the kindness of God and receives his own destruction. We who read this passage today have much to learn from it about trust. The charge to us is this. Trust in Emmanuel. Trust in the God who is with you. And we also find in this passage three warnings. Three instructions to help us learn how do we trust in this God who is with us. And the first is do not trust in false deliverers. Trust in Emmanuel. Do not trust in false deliverers. The reason that Ahaz is disinterested in the promises and even even this sign from God is that he's already placed his trust elsewhere. He's decided that the best bet out of all of the options on his table is to trust this emerging superpower, the Assyrians. His mind's made up. He's going to try to win the favor of Tiglath-Pelesar. And God allows him to pursue this relationship. Ahaz began to tear items off of the temple in Jerusalem and send them to Assyria to win the Assyrians' favor. Ahaz would pay monetary tribute to the Assyrians for the rest of his life. By the time Ahaz was near death, he was ripping off pieces of his own palace, pawning them off, and sending the money to the Assyrians. 
Ahaz died worshiping the gods of the Assyrians, hoping that he could win their favor. Ahaz spent his entire life trusting in a false deliverer. And it was that false deliverer that ended up destroying him. A few years ago, there was a, uh, a recreational bowler in Michigan, a dude by the name of Don Doan. And Don Doan had two life objectives. His first objective was to get a hole-in-one on the golf course, and his second objective was to get a 300 before he died. In 1999, Don Doan got that ace on the golf course. He got a hole-in-one. Half of his life objective is now complete. In 2008, Thursday night league night in Michigan, Don Doan is doing that thing in the bowling alley where people notice, but they pretend that they don't notice. This guy's putting together a perfect game. No one's talking about it. No one's acknowledging it. But this strange, awkward buzz of energy is in the room. Something's happening. When he gets to his 10th frame and finally his last ball, Don Doan throws the ball down the lane. The people in the alley begin to creep up to him. He gets a strike on the last roll. He turns around and his team erupts to celebrate. The other members of the league come over to congratulate him. And as Don Doan turns from one hug to one congratulatory handshake to a back slap to the next, Don Doan drops dead of cardiac arrest. Seconds after reaching his life objective. Now, I don't know much about Don Doan other than what was written about him in this New York Post article. But it does raise the question, what are you trusting to be the source of your life? A lot of people think the biggest tragedy in life is to work your whole life to get something and never get it. A far bigger tragedy is to work your entire life to get something only to find out that it was never worth it. Do you really trust success in your vocation is going to be enough for you? Do you really trust in your ability to curate the family of your dreams? Or like Ahaz, do you really trust a particular political system to solve the world's deepest problems? These are false deliverers. There's a real deliverer who is far more powerful. Flip from Isaiah chapter 7 to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah is telling us even more about this child who's promised. This child who's promised to be born to a virgin and to be called Emmanuel. Isaiah 9 verse 6. Isaiah is telling, more, telling us more about him. He says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Are we getting clearer who this child is going to be? Everlasting Father, as a baby, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and his peace, there will be no end. Here's what's happening. That child that's promised in Isaiah 7 is told to us in chapter 9 to be the fixer of all things. Christmas is the celebration of his first arrival, but it is also a reminder of his coming arrival. He is going to come. He has come to be with his people. He has left his spirit to be with his people. And he is coming again bodily to reign with his people forevermore. And I love telling young people this. You have to really be interested in someone before you choose to spend forevermore with them. He's coming back. And finally, there's going to be a king who gets every single public policy right. He's coming. As one rapper turned Baptist preacher said it, our solutions won't win. 
More government just seems more thin. With all these weighty problems that ain't shrinking, they just growing. Who's adequate to save us? How about he who knew no sin? Don't trust in false deliverers. Trust only in Emmanuel. The second instruction that we receive is to not neglect his kindness. Do not neglect his kindness. Ahaz was not a righteous man. Second Chronicles 28 describes Ahaz. It says, Ahaz worshipped false gods under, quote, every green tree, end quote. That's not the bio you want on your tombstone, right? And yet God comes to him with a gracious offer. A gracious offer. A kind offer. God says, ask for any sign that you want, and I will show it to you. And in an air of self-righteous pretense, Ahaz says, no, thank you. In other words, the Lord has no need to show me his power. Ironically, that's exactly what Ahaz needed. He needed to see the power and kindness of God to be rattled out of his own apathy. In Christianity, God offers a thousand kindnesses. To show you who he is. He has created a universe that bears witness to his power, to what he's like. Sunsets are gorgeous so that you might know God is gorgeous. He has spoken in human terms so that people like like us could understand who he is. He's been good. He's called us to meet together, to encourage one another, to remind us of the things that he has done for us. And yet... It's so easy to say in your heart that if, if I didn't come to church this month, God would still love me. It's so easy to say in your heart, I have no need to read these words that he's given me, the Bible, for myself. He'll still love me. It's, it's easy to say, I have no need for a Sabbath. After all, I'm a busy and an important person. Those are great arrogances. They are great arrogances that set us up for tragic faults. It's like the last words of a, of a toddler before a major boo-boo. Nah, ma, I can do this all by myself. It's arrogance. You don't have to do life by yourself. God is with you. There's an Emmanuel. Think about even the setting of this, this promise. This is, if you're Ahaz, this is about as bad a day of kingship as it gets, right? Your, your nation's already been ravaged by the Philistines, who you were supposed to get rid of hundreds of years ago. And not one, but two armies have colluded to march upon your already ravaged nation and set up camp outside your capital. It's a bad day to be King Ahaz. When does God come to him to tell him that he's with him? That day. I'm with you. I can be with you. I can be your God. Throughout the whole scriptures, when does God promise his people he's with them? Those kind of days. When does God tell Joshua, I'm with you? Joshua 1. He's about to march against an army of giants. He says, have I not told you? You, can, you don't need to be afraid. I'm with you wherever you go. When is David reminded that God is always with him? When he walks through the shadow of the valley of death, when death is looming, I'm reminded God's with me. When does God promise his new covenant people that he will be with us until his return? It's when he gives us a big, daunting task, the Great Commission. Go into every inch of this globe and bring the gospel there, and that's when I'm going to be with you until the end of the age, when you're doing that. Do not neglect his kindness. He's with you on days like that. God is with you. And finally, do not take lightly his judgment. Ahaz waffled his whole life. He feared what the Amorites could do to him, what the Israelites could do to him, what the Egyptians could do to him. And these fears led him to consider allegiance with Assyria. 
But these were not biblically informed fears that he was being controlled by. There are only two biblically informed fears that we are to have. The first is the fear of the Lord, which is described throughout the whole Old Testament. The acknowledgement that God is the one in the heavens. He reigns over all. The second, Hebrews 4 says, let us fear that we may not enter his rest. There's a biblically informed FOMO you're supposed to have. If, if you don't know what FOMO is, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. It's what dominates young people these days. It's like, hey, are you coming to this party? No, I don't know what will come up. I'm afraid that if I go to your party, I might miss something even more exciting. There's a biblically informed FOMO. Let us fear missing his rest. Be, that, should, that should guide you. While Ahaz is worried about this new military alliance and what it could do to him, he is ignoring how easily accomplished the Lord's judgment is. Verse 18 says that with just a whistle, with just a whistle, the Lord will bring the Egyptians up from the south. He will bring the Assyrians down from the north and he will cover their land just like hornets cover East Mississippi. So few would be spared that milk and, and curds would abound only because there'd be so few left to enjoy them. Now, Christians, do you need to live in constant fear of this kind of judgment? We're to remember it. He reminds us of it. Christians, do you need to live in constant fear of this kind of judgment? It makes me think of a pastor in Minnesota who, together with his wife, raised five godly children to adulthood. And the first four were boys. And the boys would be playing downstairs in the living room. And one would, you know run the other one's head into a wall, and that was off limits, and they knew they weren't allowed to do that, and they'd, they'd be marched up to the dad's study so that the child wasn't embarrassed in front, of, in front of his siblings. Dad would give the discipline, and then before the child would go downstairs, what did the child do? He would come and give dad this huge hug, and there'd be tears and ugly, mucusy snarf going on and be all over dad, and the kid would cry it out, and dad would be holding him tight. Why? Because the parents wanted the children to know you don't always have to live in fear of correction. When you're minding your parents, when you're hugging your parents, when you're loving on your parents, you do not need to be controlled by fear. But when you've wandered from them, when you're not minding mom, you need to remember there are consequences. That's what God is reminding us here in this passage. There is a great judgment that is easily accomplished. Romans 11.22 says, consider both the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen away, but kindness towards you, provided that you trust him. So this morning, if you are actively wandering away from this God who is pursuing you and willing to be with you and for you, let his judgment be a motivation to seek his face. The way Psalm 2 says it, Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. But if you're not actively wandering, only feeling stale from time to time, consider his judgment, how great and powerful his judgment is. The judgment that he poured onto Jesus so that you would not endure it and allow that to warm your affections for him. My prayer for you today, whether this is your fourth or your 94th advent, is that your heart would be found saying, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Come, this God who's with us, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until, until the Son of God appears. Let's strengthen our trust that we share in this Emmanuel together by reading together 
the verse of the week. Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray. Lord, please secure our trust in you. You are the God who is with us and keep us for yourself because you are a God who has promised to be with us wherever we will go. And in that we take great courage. We ask this in your son Jesus' mighty name. Amen.